Welcome to the Lions Edge presented by BetMGM. It's conference tournament week. Selection Sunday this Sunday. First for Tuesday and Wednesday. First round next Thursday. We will be on Twitter Spaces from the BetMGM account on Sunday. Immediately following the selection show. You and I were going back and forth on this. I think it takes about what, 30, 40 minutes to get the field out? It varies like year to year based on like how much extra bullshit they want to throw in or, you know, th- then like there's a backlash and they decide, yeah, let's just get right to it. Everybody only cares about 12 minutes of content here. But uh, yeah, you know, 20, I feel like they got the message after they tried to pull that. I think it was in 2018 where they did them by alphabetical order. Or what? wasn't there one year where they were like, yeah, we blew it out to 90 minutes and the first 45 is just people talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been the year before, and then 18 was the alphabetical order thing, which was insane because you knew who didn't get involved, who didn't get included based upon, all right, we're a B team, and they just got to C's. And then I think after that, the backlash hit enough, or 19, they went back. Anyways, we'll go on there right when Lions are going live at the book, uh, probably about like 6.30, 6.45 Eastern. So hop on, give us your predictions, ask questions, anything right after the selection show. On Sunday. Also, if you want a free bet for the tournament, leave a review for the Lions Edge. Screenshot that, whatever podcast player you use, send it to us on Twitter at the Lions Edge. We'll drop a free bet in your account. Before we get to some college basketball stuff, uh, a little bit of movement in the NFL this week. We'll start with football, ending with college basketball. Do you remember when we hopped on last year? Whenever the Matthew Stafford trade went through, and this is where Late I want to start. January, because- I believe. Yeah, whenever that was, we asked this question right off the top on that episode, something to the effect of, are the Rams now legit Super Bowl contenders with staff? Like, does this move the needle enough where we take the Rams from that team they were a year before they go into Lambeau and lose a playoff game, Jared Goff looks terrible, all of that. You immediately said, yes, this moves the needle enough where the Rams are a legit Super Bowl contender. Turns out they were. It took me a bit to join you, but eventually I did and ultimately surpassed you in buying quite a bit of Rams offseason stock. But instead of asking the same question, I want to start with Russell Wilson. Instead of asking the same question for Russell Wilson and the Broncos, I want to ask this is, who does this push down the AFC ladder then of of contenders? Because there's not room for that many 12, 13, 14-win teams in that club of Super Bowl contenders in the AFC. Like some team or multiple teams will have fewer wins and be worse because of this for a variety of reasons. And it seems like the quick and easy answer is the Chargers, right? Or is there another team or a group of teams where you say they got hurt because of this trade? I think the Chargers is the obvious answer. I think I, I think my pulse, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours removed from this trade is I think you're asking a fundamental question. I think that's a good question. I, I'm i not even prepared to accept the premise of the question, which is the Broncos are now really good. Like, what if the answer to that question is the Broncos themselves? I thought somebody uh, somebody internally here at, at BetMGM today asked a good question, which was, why are Broncos fans so excited about this you just went from having the fourth best quarterback in your division to the third best quarterback in your division. And I think that is a little drab and a little tongue in cheek and, and counter, you know, counter culture. Let me go against the thing that's really popular right now and raid on somebody's parade. But there is an element of truth to it. Would you rather be today? Would you rather be the Chiefs, the Broncos or the Chargers? 
Well, you'd rather I, be the Chiefs, but I put I, Broncos number two, and it seems like we're going to have disagreement here. Where I, yeah. I do, I, I'm not going like full. The, the Broncos are going 14 and three next year, but what will they go last year? I can't even remember. Eight and nine, nine and eight, somewhere in that ballpark. Somewhere in there, yeah. Some, yeah, some somewhere. I don't even know. Seven and you know, seven and ten, eight and nine, whatever it was. I do think this is a 12 and five team now. So it seems like you're not even close to being there yet. I, I'm not sure what version of Russell Wilson they're getting. I think uh, I, I think it's kind of hard to assess what his last couple of years in Seattle has been. He's never had a great offensive line. It's been really really tough. It feels like uh, he's been hurt. I don't know how what sort of impact that's had on his play in the past. I don't know what sort of impact it'll have on his play in the future. I don't know how he's going to look in whatever offense Denver runs. Uh, I, I like the receivers he has around him, but he had some pretty good receivers in Seattle. So I, I don't. I don't accept the fact that Seattle or uh, Denver is now just like an automatic, you have to figure out where they live in the AFC playoff structure. I don't think they're like a lock for contender status. And I will for sure tell you that if you are betting on Denver at, what are they, plus 1,200 right now at BetMGM, like that is that is a very square number to be betting on Denver to win the Super Bowl. Like the the bet for Denver was... You bet them before the trade happened. You bet them at plus 3,000 or whatever they were on the idea that maybe they get the quarterback uh, situation figured out through trade or free agency. And now that it's actually happened, all the value is gone. Like you're, you're buying way, way high. So, I mean, ideally you bought in in that like two hour window where Rodgers has signed with Green Bay, but Russell Wilson hadn't yet. Uh, been announced to be traded to Denver and you got them at plus 2,500. That was like the best case scenario. Uh, I would not be buying them here. I would at the very least, I would be waiting to see what Denver does in free agency and through the draft, uh, but you cannot be buying Denver now. Like that is the number one takeaway. If you take away nothing else from this segment of the podcast, you can't buy Denver now. Maybe you might want to buy them later. What do you think their over under for wins will be this season? And just really quickly, if you don't, Remember their opponents. Obviously, they have the AFC West. Right. Uh, they have the AFC South, and then they have the NFC West. Do you think that their over under will be eleven and a half? Oh, I'm not supposed to say that, but <laughs> so why nine and a half? You think their over under will be nine and a half? You don't think the book will get crushed on the over? Dude, they play in a hard division, and they've got to play the NFC West. I mean, I get there's some wins there in the AFC South, but okay, yeah. I, I, I overshot that and you under. There, it's not going to be nine and a half. Maybe it's ten. I think it's nine and a half. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I, I don't. I mean, they're the third best team in their division. But are they? Maybe they're the second best team in the division. The point is, it. I mean, do you know how rare it is last year to have a situation in the NFC West where you had multiple teams that had win totals that were double digits. Like that's kind of rare. You don't see that all the time. So I think I I'll tell you this, if it's like 10 and a half, I'm crushing the under. I like, that's so high. That's so high. Yeah. But at 10, you're taking the over. No, I'm taking the under. No, No, I'm taking the under. There's no, the, the only difference between 10 and 10 and a half is I'm getting a push on 10. Right. But you, you think, so I they were in seven to nine last year. So you think that, Russell, I agree with you, and we've talked about this on the show before. I think Russell Wilson has been a little bit overrated, and I don't know if like his weapons are even better. 
in Denver. Maybe they are. Obviously, his offensive line is. But I think a lot of the stuff that we don't know, and it sounds like everything in Seattle was pretty bad, and not that the Broncos have been this fixture of stability and competence over the last several years, and we'll see with the pending sale and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that comes with when you make a deal like this, the signal that it sends. For example, and we'll get to Aaron Rodgers probably a little bit. I don't think the Packers will be necessarily better next year than they were this past year, and they're going to have a lot of cap issues. Rodgers is disputing the $200 million number, all that kind of stuff. But in bringing him back, you are sending a signal to that team where we're still going for a Super Bowl. You deal him, and maybe Jordan Love is fine, or maybe they bring in another quarterback and they can still go 11-6 and six or whatever, but I believe there's a mental component that you and I don't understand when you have that grind of the NFL offseason, that grind of the NFL season where, and I'm not specifically calling out like Rashawn Gary because he's a hell of a player, but does Rashawn Gary's mindset change if Aaron Rodgers is coming back versus Jordan Love and the signal that the front office is sending and saying that we're not going for a Super Bowl this year, we're taking a step toward rebuilding this team. I think that is what's in play and that alone accounts for at least two wins, in my opinion, from the Broncos. So going from seven and ten to nine and eight, that that's the absolute floor for them. Somebody gets hurt, everything goes to hell. If this number is ten, I'm gladly taking the over on it. You know how many times uh Russell Wilson was sacked in the last I don't know, five years? Five years? Yeah. Uh two hundred and twenty. Uh, I'm doing math. I think it's it's about two twenty five, two thirty. I'm doing some quick math there in my head, but I mean it's two two twenty six. You know what age Russell Wilson is going to turn this season? Came in the league in twenty twelve, and he was what twenty three. So he's, he's thirty two. He's turning thirty four this season. That somebody had tweeted that this is better for the Broncos than getting Aaron Rodgers, and I don't even want to have. I mean, talk about full talk radio. I don't want to have that debate. But the argument was that when you're trading for Rodgers, you're getting two high end of three years with Russell Wilson, you're getting an eight to 10 year solution from a mobile quarterback. You're getting eight to 10 more years of elite quarterback play way. (laughs) Come on. I mean, this is a five to six year solution. Max, I will, I'll defend Denver on this. I would do this trade a hundred times out of hundred. All right. They had no quarterback and now they have a quarterback. And like a good quarterback, a quarterback we like, a quarterback we we generally think is a known commodity. So I, I don't I don't want to come off as too harsh here. I just think the the Denver hype is now very very high. And anytime you're talking about hype and handicapping, that is an automatic chance for an opportunity to go the other way. That's how I see this. Denver is going to be good next year. They're not going to be great next year, and they are a total fade target for me. Anything on Aaron Rodgers, I don't know if I really have that much because I've been, I've just, I mean, I muted Rodgers on, not him personally, but the term Aaron Rodgers on Twitter because there was so much what it seems like was incorrect reporting over the last several weeks. I just, I didn't care about any of it. So I don't really have any strong takes about Rodgers. I think you could talk about what I just said, the the mindset that I think changes the fact that they're going into the season now with severe cap issues, presumably if this number is anywhere near $200 million, they didn't, they're not starting Jordan Love, but also they didn't get back a Jerry Judy or a Patrick Sertan, which they would have gotten in a trade. I mean, talk about the Broncos getting Russell Wilson without having to give up Judy or Sertan. Some people were saying that Noah Fant is unfortunate to lose. 
who cares? It's a tight end. I mean, <laughs> relax. What, what, is he a, is he a, like a top eight tight end? I mean, if no. you have Travis Kelsey, like Trey Travis Kelsey, I don't care. Yeah, that's I, a weird take. Anyways, going back to the Aaron Rodgers thing, anything on that, like a specific take that you have regarding that situation? I Look, I don't have a take on the football part of it, uh, other than I, I agree with your assessment that like, hey, just because he's coming back doesn't necessarily mean the Packers are going to be better. I think in some ways it would be hard for them to be better than they were last year. I know the yeah. playoff thing was disappointing, but their week-to-week excellence, it was pretty high. So I, I think that's a smart take by you. I... I'm just I'm curious just by what's in Rogers' head. I it's I don't know how much of this is manufactured, how much of this is is sort of new media manipulation that we've seen in multiple sectors of society over the last six or seven years. Um, you can you know it, it's funny how you know if you are a Game of Thrones fan, you understand this, the saying "chaos is a ladder." It kind of feels like that people have started to apply that to media manipulation and that Rogers has like created chaos out of nothing because it, it makes him more visible. I don't know how much of that's an intentional is and how much of that's not, but it, it feels like this whole saga of the last couple of years and then the flirtation with other teams and the trading and the, the alleged unhappiness and all that. I just don't know what to do with any of that. And at a certain point, like, I don't want to be armchair psychologist trying to figure out what's going on inside of Aaron Rodgers' head. But at the same time, depending on how much of this is real and legit, like, I kind of need to know at least some part of that in order to do a handicap on the Packers, on Rodgers, on what they are as a team. So I'm, I'm just, I don't have an answer to that. It's it's just, it, it's constantly a thing that I think about of, 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 I mean, maybe you have insight to that that I don't because of your your connection and, and where you are up there and your, your fandom and everything. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know what to do with any of that. And it, at a certain point, the, the spectacle surpasses my interest in the actual football and what's going on, like in the general manager's office. Okay. To be completely honest, I don't care. And when you were talking, I was trying to rank the tight ends. <laughs> to see where Noah Fant actually sat. And <laughs> no, he's not a top 10 tight end. Is he he's a top 14? A- I think he's in that ballpark. He's behind Andrews and Kelsey and Waller and Kittle and Pitts. Uh, let's say Gronk comes back. He's behind Gronk. He's behind. That's not happening. Okay, fine. He's not there. He's behind Dallas Goddard, correct? Mm, my guy. Yeah. South Dakota State. He's behind, he's behind TJ Hawkinson. He's behind Dawson Knox. He's behind Zach Ertz, Dalton Schultz. Uh, he might be behind Logan Thomas or Pat Fryermuth. I mean, like, is there anyone he's not behind? Like, he's a he's Holy a player. To, like, what do you what are the, the MLB term? A player to be named later. That's yeah. what he is. <laughs> like, what are we even doing here? I don't care. Anyways, we can we can be done with that. You pulled a full Mackenzie McHale on me earlier today with a oh, throw out the rundown. <laughs> I did. When uh, I did when the that. Carson news was dropped, you gave me a throw out the rundown on Twitter and. I gave you an idea of how I felt about that news, but I needed a better way to convey my reaction to that news. And then our friend John Ewing just gifted it to me with this tweet where he tweeted out the Washington Commanders working on this, the Commanders, the odds for Super Bowl before the Wentz trade. Actually, uh, we have three odds, Super Bowl, NFC, NFC East. Before the Wentz trade, the NFC East, they're plus 450. After the trade, they're plus 450. In the NFC, they're plus 2200. 
after the trade, 2200. Super Bowl before the trade, 5000. After the trade, 5000. I do not care. This trade doesn't make them better. This trade doesn't make them worse. This trade does nothing for them as a franchise this year or moving forward. I I just don't care about this move whatsoever. Carson Wentz has not done a thing in five years. I don't know why we're still talking about him as if he's a top. When you talk about Noah Fant, is, is Carson Wentz a top 20 quarterback right now? I just don't care. Okay. Um, It's, it's interesting because I didn't really want to talk about them that much other than to kind of do what you just did is point out, hey, this is also a thing that happened this week. Like, obviously, it's not on the level of the Rodgers deal or the Wilson trade, but it did happen and we have to spend 30 seconds acknowledging it. Uh, but it, your your mentioning of the odds in, in, in John's tweet kind of does open a pathway for me, which is to say that I don't think it's nothing. And, and that, that odd shift or the lack of an odd shift suggests that it's nothing. I don't think it's nothing because for, for the same reason that the Wilson-Denver trade isn't nothing. You had a backup playing quarterback. At times, you had less than a backup playing quarterback. And now you have a guy, a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And Wentz, who is a deeply flawed quarterback, who may or may not have other like locker room type issues or care type issues and like teammate issues, all of this weird stuff that kind of swirls around him, rumor mill, whatever, whatever you know, for whatever any of that is worth. Like they the Washington had a backup playing all last year. There's they brought in Fitzpatrick, who's like a million years old at this point, and he gets hurt immediately, and they have Taylor Heineke play the entire season when Taylor Heineke had been like working at Panera Bread the year before. Like look at you just shitting on the ODU quarterback. I look, I mean, I and I like Heineke. I think it's a cool story, but it much hay was made of the fact that before Heineke came back to play in that wild card game against Tampa, the last playoff round, so like not not this past January, but the year before that, he was basically like out of the league and working at an accounting firm. And then they just brought him off the street and he played quarterback for a wild card round. And then that guy plays quarterback the entire 2021 season. So the fact that you now upgrade that to Carson Wentz, who again, but, we whoa, are, but, but, okay, we're you, acknowledging you he's a flawed quarterback. I know, but you disagree with my, my, my premise of the Broncos just being better. Carson Wentz is better than Taylor Heineke. Are we sure? Oh, come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. Definitely, yes. Now, can he, when when Carson Wentz goes wrong, sure, I understand. It goes really wrong. And, and I think part of, part of the, re, uh, when you sign on the dotted line with Carson Wentz, you are acknowledging there's going to be two or three games this year where this guy throws five picks and adds in like another couple of fumbles and it is just a total train wreck and you have no chance to win that game. I, if if you told me the Washington Super Bowl odds didn't change, I would kind of understand that. But you're telling me their divisional odds, this garbage division with the Cowboys that have increasing cap problems, the Giants can't get their shit together at all. I'm not willing to buy the Eagles yet, really at all. I mean, they they were a fun story, but they I mean they they were the only a playoff team this past year because we you know we expanded to seven teams. That was not a playoff caliber team. And I'm not really willing to buy Jalen Hurts yet as a franchise quarterback. So this division is winnable to me. 
And if you bring in a guy like Carson Wentz, I'm going to take a shot on on the divisional odds for Washington. I I think there is value there now. I can't believe that of these three quarterbacks, I'm most invested in this discussion than the other two. Because I, I, I think that there is, even though I think this is nothing, I think that because of what you had pushed back against me, I think it becomes an interesting discussion. The point, I guess my original point was, if they had signed... It's all about price point. That's, well, I, okay, that's I'm not. Okay, I'm not even... I agree with, with that. I, I, I am a little bit surprised that their NFC East odds did not go up. Yes. However, if this team went and signed Jameis Winston or like Tyrod Taylor or Trubisky, I don't know that they would be that much worse Trubisky would be an interesting case because I I mean Trubisky's another case where it's like actually now I think the hate's gone too far like Trubisky can do some things he's he's not a long-term solution I think he's he's in his correct role now uh, but like if if he rolled out and started a season for Washington and they had you know seven to one divisional odds I would be interested in buying Trubisky and his team, at least in the NFC East. And literally all it took was just not having Matt Nagy as your coach for a year. Like, he, he didn't play. It's all about price point, and Washington's price point with Wentz is now interesting to me. Whereas before, it was like, man, like, this, you gotta you gotta be able to do something at the quarterback position. And Heineke, I mean, he's a cheap option that lets you spend money in other places. Um, that's, I think, where I really need to do more digging is what are the economic ramifications for having Wentz on Washington's roster? Because if I, I don't know when that insane contract that he has is up and, and when he would move on to you know more of a mid-level type of thing or even maybe a little less than that, that's that's when things would get really interesting for me and if, and for how I examine odds and look at teams' uh, windows for, for winning on a big level. But uh, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think my takeaway from this week is sort of buy, and I mean this in the broadest terms possible, buying Washington, selling Denver, holding on Green Bay. Do you know how much, this is the last note on NFL and go to college basketball, do you know how much Trubisky signed for last year? Oh, it's, one, one year I don't deal. think it's a lot. I mean, what is it, like $7 million? Maybe not even that? 2.5. Yeah. That's okay. the thing. I mean, go, go look at, like, Jameis Winston's contract. Uh, with you know, with the Saints, what he was making. Like when you can get these guys that are distressed assets, but they are on micro deals. Like their value to the team autom- completely changes around because you're getting you know eighty percent of a product. You're getting compromised product, but you have so much money to spend elsewhere and build around them. And I'm telling you, there is going to be a correction away from these mega quarterback deals because of that. Because as great as it is to have Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Patrick Mahomes or, or these insanely paid quarterbacks, it is more valuable to have more depth in the other 52 positions on the field. And this is this is the hill I'm just willing to die on. This Because I, I think the stats and who wins Super Bowls, it, it bears that out. Because it is rare to have mega paid quarterbacks winning the Super Bowl. It just doesn't happen very often. So you went back to the well on what we've talked about like a hundred times and, and you interrupted the point of Trubisky. Cause when he, I don't remember when he signed, but I would guess that when he signed for two and a half million dollars, the general reaction was, why are you paying Mitchell Trubisky $2.5 million? That's a great signing. And he, he backs up Josh Allen. Well, like what Josh Allen can do, Mitch Trubisky can do. 
But I think like that probably was the general reaction to it. And now he threw eight passes last year. He was six of eight for 43 yards, zero touchdowns and one interceptions, one interception after just not having Matt Nagy as his coach and throwing eight passes. There have been rumors that he could get a deal north of $10 million per season. If that happens, we're putting Matt Nagy's value at negative seven and a half million dollars. <laughs> Like, I don't that, know it works quite like that, but that is an amusing way to look that, at it. Is that an advanced is, stat? But that's the quarterback version of like the fired coach who then takes a year off, takes a second year and goes and works as like an offensive analyst at Alabama under Saban and then comes back out and he's a shiny new prospect again. Like, I uh, learned so much. He's just figured so much stuff out in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, all it took was Kingsbury to get fired for the NFL to say, hey, let's give you five mil a year to come on down. College basketball. I want to do something quick, if I may, and I think it, it kind of fits into what we'll generally talk about. We've talked about this before, but it came back up on Twitter last week or on Monday, and somebody has tracked the narrative that it's hard to beat a team three times in a row. Uh, one of my favorite which things. Which applies in conference tournaments very often, and sometimes, albeit rarely, in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, we can break down the numbers, get into specific scenarios, but that's not really the point. I can send this he has just, it's a link from uh, an account called hoop vision 68 tweeted out on monday looking at how often again the team can beat a team three times in a row i don't believe it's just in one season so that kind of defeats the purpose a tiny bit if a team were to have won the last game of the series the previous year and then the next two a little bit different deal but anyways i, I don't think that's the actual point here it's more so how can you use narratives both true or false or maybe a third category of just unproven or impossible to prove narratives. How can you use all narratives to your advantage, whether or not they're true, false, or impossible to prove? And I'm sure we'll get into some 12-5 stuff next week and on spaces because there might not be a heavier narrative in college basketball. And even though people are generally right about that, yeah, 12s win a lot, but fives still win two out of every three games. The five seed is six is uh, has a winning percentage of about sixty seven percent of the time since the tournament expanded back in eighty five. So over three years, the five seed is still going to go eight and four. That's an extremely high success rate. But because of that narrative, because it happens more than an eleven over a six, and because the twelve five game gets much attention every year, I think in this case the narrative is just louder than than the results. Which, which going to your point about marketplace all the time can affect tourney lines. And when you this, I thought about this because you wrote an article this week that was something about uh, like seven mid majors you need to watch because you weren't paying attention to college basketball this year. You started it by saying something like that: you haven't paid attention to college basketball this season until now. Just admit it. And that made me think of well, everyone's now going to start talking about this twelve five, even though they know nothing. I mean, going back to the Jackrabbits, nobody has watched South Dakota State this year, but everybody is going to pick them in the twelve five game over Houston or UConn or whomever. So going back to that, we've talked about this before, but using those narratives to your advantage, regardless of if they're true or not, how do you approach it with something like that, where it, people say it's hard to win three times in a row against the same opponent, and even though, uh, yeah, a little bit harder, but they still win 70% of the time? Yeah, I mean, you laid it out really beautifully there. The, the idea is there is public power in common narratives and so there is handicapping power in going against those narratives and you're not going to win all the time but you're going to win a lot so like finding a good five seed to bet on 
is great because oftentimes the lines are kind of short. You know they're going to be favored. You know that they're probably going to be a short favorite because if the book hangs the 12 as catching, you know, eight and a half points in some dramatic game, the public's going to jump all over a 12 to cover because it's a known commodity. Ooh, the 12s over the fives. That's a sexy thing. We know that happens. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe people don't know this as much, but the 12 over five upset happens more than the 11 over six matchup statistically. So it's, there is power there. I think, I think, the sort of converse of that is there is value in chasing the 13s plus the points and the 14s plus the points. The 15s and the 16s, it starts to get a little dicey because then you're talking about a real difference in power structure. You're talking about, you know, the the Dukes and the Kansases of the world going against very, very low, unproven low majors you know, you're like Mac champions at double A here. We're talking you're long Metro Lancers, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, you know, Gonzaga playing against, you know, like some team that upsets the favorite in the Atlantic sun. You know, like you're talking big, big, big guys versus very, very little guys. And so oftentimes those t- games, the ones and the twos against the 15s and the 16s, those turn into total blowouts. Less so recently, and we have seen over the last 10, 12 years, a lot more 15s over 2s than we have historically, because historically, those 1s and 2s are very, very protected. Uh, I obviously don't need to mention UMBC and UVA here because it's you know everybody knows about it. It's the only time it's ever happened. But the point is, you want to be a little careful betting on... 15s and 16s plus the points because those could turn into blowouts. 13 and 14 is kind of the sweet spot for me where you can find teams that are, maybe they don't get the outright upset, but they are going to be competitive, more competitive than people think. And you can buy in plus the points. And then that, that pendulum swings back toward the favorite. Once you get to the five twelves. I mentioned that five twelve clip. The fives are one ten and 54 all times against 12s, 67%. Do you know what the winning percentage is for fours versus thirteens? Uh, 87. 79. Okay, so it happens quite thought. a bit. So that proves your point a little bit. And then uh, 84% for threes versus 14. That's a question little more you. than I th- a little more than I thought, yeah. This game has come up a couple of times when we've been leading up to our strategy for betting and narratives and all that kind of stuff. It was at Georgetown, Colorado game last year. And if everybody remembers, Colorado was a, a pretty good Pac-12 team. Uh, in, in most years that we've had the last four or five years, Colorado would have been one of the, the better Pac-12 teams uh, that they've produced because the Pac-12 has been so down. Georgetown basically sucked the whole year and then had that miracle run in the Big East tournament. Do you recall what that line was for that game? Six. It was six. It was Colorado ah, minus six. Wow. And you got on here right away and just yeah, absolutely pound the table. pounded that yeah. line. And I think that even in that, you admitted and you said, hey, if Georgetown comes out and does this again, I get burned, whatever. But you're giving me <laughs> the line's only six points. I need to go back and listen to that episode. Line's only six points for a Colorado team that was fantastic all year, had some great wins just because Georgetown won three games in a not so awesome Big East, and you absolutely pounded that. I mentioned this to you before a couple years ago, same kind of deal with Murray State and Marquette. You ended up getting burned on the other side of that because Murray State just absolutely ran through them. But in a normal circumstance, if that was just a non-conference game played in March, like early March for whatever reason, 
Colorado would have been like a 12 or a 13 point favorite. But because everybody watched the Big East tournament and everybody watched the Big East final, they put that number at six. And we should go back and actually see what the handle uh, and ticket splits for were that four were for, were for that game. But that number was put at six and you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, I, I had a really good tournament last year. Um, I, I, I even kind of want to say, like, I'm, I'm afraid I can't live up to how good of a tournament I had last year. I mean, I had Oral Roberts over Ohio State. Like, I had all kinds of crazy shit that happened. Um, so I, I kind of don't think I can I can do it that well again. But it is, at least to some degree, repeatable because the tournament follows similar patterns. Not, not every single year, year to year, but in the macro, like most of the time, you have these certain things that happen that we're describing. Uh, you, you know it's going to be profitable if on, on certain... Uh, upset calls. You know, if you're betting dogs, you want to follow up with the money line, kind of like we talked about a lot in the NFL. But this is the tournament, which means upsets are going to happen. So if you like a dog, it is often profitable to follow it up with the money line. You're not going to hit everyone. You might not even hit half of them, but you're probably going to end up positive. Uh, 13s and 14s get too many points. We talked about that. Uh, be careful of trendy dogs. I call this the VCU effect. Everybody remembers VCU's run in 2011. Nobody stops to ask questions about how many games they've won since then. They haven't won a tournament game in a little while. And it's it kind of surprises people because they just you have that thing stuck in your mind, the really big famous thing, and then it, it, it hangs over many, many years afterwards, and that creates value on the other side. So I think the the obvious example I could provide here, which is uh, an example I wrote about on the Roar this week, is North Texas. If North Texas comes out of Conference USA and makes the tournament, they're going to be a very trendy upset pick because they beat Purdue last year. And they'll probably be in that 12-5 game too. That is such a team you want to bet against this year because the odds that they pull off big-time back-to-back upsets, like I'm telling you, if they're in the field, I'm betting against North Texas round one. I almost can just guarantee it right now, blind, no matchup, no. Uh, so that's a thing you want to watch for is, is be careful about the trendy underdogs. Uh, Who, I, so, I mean, you mentioned North Texas. This is something that we, we briefly talked about before, uh, I think a couple episodes ago. I think like Loyola probably falls in that conversation, even though I, I do think Loyola is a pretty good team. I think that they yeah, are a team that's most likely going to get an 11 and they'll get, you know, Iowa in the first round or Ohio State or Colorado State or whomever. but. Those teams are good. Like, there's a reason why teams are seated highly. Yes. I'm not big on Houston, like, at all. I tweeted uh, kind of facetiously yesterday that I'm having a hard time talking today that South Dakota State, I think, is going to beat Houston in the 12-5 game. But, like, Houston is not a bad team. Or UConn on the five line is not a bad team. Or you're, LSU you're or more, Alabama. Uh, you're more locked into the bracketology stuff than I am. Is Houston going to be a five this year? That's, that's about where they are. Yeah, they'll be between a four and a six, probably a five. Okay. They have played poorly lately. Anyways, there's a reason why those teams are seeded highly because they have done something at some point during the regular season to justify that. And even though I think Loyola Chicago is good, that doesn't make me think anything less of Colorado State, who's had a fantastic season. Like mm. Seton Hall is good. They could be in the 11 6 game, or maybe it's a 10 7 game. Top I mean, of the East about- is good this year. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about VCU, and I get that Loyola Chicago has had more success recently, but they kind of also fall into that bucket because 
I mean, the, the Missouri Valley Championship game was on CBS, but like nobody's watching that. Like your, your casual fan isn't really paying attention to actually what Loyola Chicago has. They probably don't even know that Porter Moser left Loyola Chicago. They have no idea who the coach is. So use that to your advantage. I don't know if I'm going to bet against Loyola Chicago, against Seton Hall or LSU or Alabama or whomever, but they also kind of fall into that bucket. Um, Rutgers? Rutgers fall into that bucket with a couple of late season wins? Maybe? Uh, of of a target to bet against now because to they bet have against? Some, some I mean, very do you, public visible upsets? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, do you go so far as to say, hey, let's bet against Chattanooga because everybody in the world saw that buzzer beater? <laughs> Uh, is that is that the line play. you're drawing? Chattanooga, Chattanooga is such a like well built March Cinderella team. I mean, it's just there's so many classic. I get what you're saying, but I don't know, man. They they really might be like. I think there's a reason they hit that shot. Like, I don't think that was an accident. They, you're going that far? Yeah, I am because I watched them play a lot because I love SoCon basketball. It's yeah, like, I know, but like you're going so far as to say there's a reason they hit that shot. I'm not saying like big R reason. Like, look, I'm not taking this to a weird place. I'm just saying if you're going to like, there are certain teams that are going to be better about that sort of thing of like hitting a contested 24 footer at the buzzer. Uh, than other teams. And I think Chattanooga is pretty good at that kind of basketball, which can be value, uh, can be valuable during, during this time of year. Can I tell you another thing talking about narratives? Uh, can, can, I, can I throw one more team out there, please? Of course, please. Do you know when the last time Davidson won a tournament game? Oh, huh. uh, I don't know. Was it 2000, was it, 2008? They haven't won a tournament game since it, 2008, since okay. that run. I was going to, people ask. are going to pick Davidson over USC in the 10, seven game. Because of what Steph Curry did 14 years ago. I was going to ask about Steph Curry. This reminds me of the conversation we had about Oklahoma State football last year, where we were saying there seems to be this idea that no matter who plays quarterback at Oklahoma State, they're going to be good. They're going to have great receivers throwing to them, hitting the overs on these totals, all that kind of stuff. I mean, talk about Davidson, who's been good since then. Like, Bob McKillop is one of the best coaches, I think, in the country, but they haven't been all that good, but because... Steph Curry went berserk 14 years ago. Somebody in Bakersfield is going to say, ooh, Davidson over Murray State. And you know what? I'm taking them over Kansas in the second round. Bakersfield, random drive-by. I can't remember who said it. Somebody said the the Oklahoma State-Baylor Big 12 championship game should be the official end of the Big 12 as an offensive league. No, it'll still happen this year. It'll it'll be in preview mags. It'll be everywhere still. Pay, Pay attention to what is said during the selection show. Because you know who's watching that selection show? You. You know who else is watching it? Everybody else that pays attention to the NCAA tournament. So when they make like offhanded comments about what a game might be like, or like, ooh, better watch that team. Or, ooh. Six million viewers last year for the selection show. A lot, lot of offense in that game. That moves lines. It's kind of silly to think about, but it is. And like we we pointed out, we were right on it last year, the Colgate-Arkansas game where we were like, they made a side comment about how, you know, first one to 100 wins that game. And I was like, instant under, which it was. So like it colors how people think about a lot of these games because going into that Arkansas-Colgate game, guess how many people had watched Colgate basketball? Not many. But they heard who they perceive as knowledgeable people make a comment like that. And so that is the only information they have. They bet the over. 
easy under. It's that kind and of stuff. And it doesn't even have to be. I think it was Seth Davis that said it. He wasn't even. I know that it was tongue in cheek, and they're not actually going to score 100 points, but like he was. He's right. I mean, these teams can fly. They had a really slow start, and they still kind of got close to it. And you had mentioned, I remember on that episode where you said, I bet we could pull up some different tempo stats and different efficiency stats and make a really strong argument for the over. We just thought it was a little bit inflated. And it wasn't even necessarily that Seth Davis was wrong. It's just that everybody took that, and I think the number was like 168 or 169 or something. And it opened at like and then, 163. And yeah, it, and then but, just absolutely you know, murdered it. Right. But it didn't make any sense because nobody had ever even, nobody even knows where Colgate is. Matt Langle, friend of the pod. <laughs> um, be careful with your money line parlays. I think that's my last word of wisdom here. If you want to come out of the gate and hit some of those fresh favorite money lines, you got to be careful because upsets happen. And oftentimes they are upsets that you are not prepared for. So you want to be very conservative in laying out which favorites in that first round you want to put into your parlay. You put some twos in there. Maybe you want to, you know, you find a three that you feel very good about. You put your ones in there, even though I don't know how much, you know, when they're minus 2,200 favorites, I don't really know how much that's moving your math, but like go for it if you want. Maybe you put all four of them there. It it changes something for you. But be careful. Be very careful. You don't need to make a 19-leg parlay. With, you know, all the ones, all the twos, all the threes, all the fours. You're going down if you do that. That's not a good idea. So I'm not saying don't make the money line parlay. I'm just saying be conservative about how you build it and what you put in there. There's a reason why when you enter all your bracket challenges, and BetMGM will do one, so look out for that on Sunday and Monday. When you enter all those bracket challenges and why companies say, I'll give you a billion dollars for a perfect bracket, and nobody <laughs> it's is because they know they're never going to do that. Close. Nobody is even. I don't believe in like all the math. They say, like, you only have one in whatever chance of doing it. Well, no, because you're not an idiot. You know that the ones are going to win. But going back to the percentages of... Yeah, a three seed beats a 14 84% of the time, but that still means that on average it happens once every two years. I'll never forget. quite a bit. I'll never forget. I was a sophomore in college the year VCU went to the Final Four, and SportsCenter had on a guy before the Final Four who had an entirely perfect bracket up to that point. And they were like, what What was your method? Like, how did you you get to the bottom of this? And you got to remember, this is like the the bracket that year. It was like Butler... like eight seed Butler, eleven seed VCU, three seed UConn. I don't remember who the other one was, uh, but it, I mean it was a ridiculous Final Four. And they're asking him like a serious like, tell us about your analytics question. And the guy was like, well, you know, I had like fifteen bush lights and polished off two dozen chicken wings, and I just was you know firing randos like at the bracket. Like it's just it's not gonna happen. So stuff happens that you're not going to be able to account for. So be conservative on the parlays, especially Kentucky. early on. It was Kentucky, it was Kentucky. Uh, UConn, yes. and that really tight, low-scoring uh, semifinal. Yep. And then Butler, uh, Butler VCU. Tell the people about Twitter Spaces. Twitter Spaces. Sunday night, after the selection show, we'll be on right after, whatever we said, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, depends on how big of a bug CBS has up their ass to shove in a couple of commercial breaks. And then we'll record a podcast right after that, drop it on Sunday night. You know, the parlay stuff hurts me a little bit because, I mean, you do college basketball money, money line parlays all the time too, but it's my most profitable bet. Like if we're categorizing types of bets, aside from betting on a touchback in the Super Bowl, if we're categorizing that as its own category, 
college basketball money line parlay is my most profitable bet. But I agree with you. I don't think I'm going to put any of those together this tournament. I'll do one. I'd always do one. It always hits because I'm very, I just, I'm not, I'm not shooting for the moon. It's five teams. I probably don't get it to 110. I got to lay a little juice and I'm fine with it because I'm taking, I'm taking my money and I'm staying in the casino a little bit longer. I'm not getting beat on the first day. It also could be an opportunity to throw in like a Colorado from last year, where I'm guessing they were somewhere in the ball. If they were a six-point favorite, they are probably minus 210. You know, you add a couple of 15s and a 14 and put Colorado in there, you're probably at even money. Anyways, hop in our space Sunday night, bring some predictions, upsets you like, lines you like, your deep methodology to picking brackets. Would love to have you. Send any questions ahead of time to us on Twitter at the Lions Edge. Thank you for listening to Lions Edge, presented by BetMGM.